A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. This week, that's all of Lightbringer. Again, what would you expect? This is the, this is this. That's where we are. This is Cross. I'm PJ. And we have a third person here today. I didn't know that no. I was supposed to introduce myself there. Is that, so am I we, doing didn't it? Do, we didn't talk about it. We didn't figure it out. Retroactively doing it. <laughs> I'm Philip. Hi, Philip. <laughs> and we... <laughs> and we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Oh, here in the we script is where we have people. our introduction. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what? <laughs> not like you don't have it right in front of you, PJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I'm good. I'm good at good my work. job. It's cool. Is that is this one of these things we're going to do that again, or we're just going to keep nope. going and it's going to no. be fun? Just keep I like that better. Thank you. Yeah. I would much rather just keep going and just push through all that awkwardness and just be like, "Yes, we are here. Yes, we're we here. don't yeah. care. Mm-hmm. I like it." Mm-hmm. No, that's pretty much our attitude with a lot of this. We don't generally retake anything outside of like occasionally, like if we're reading a quote, it'll be like, "That's so I, I butchered that so badly." Give I me do a that second. all the time, but. I, yeah. I, I have to reread it three or four times to make sure I get like the take that I want. And, you know, we we score a lot of our, you know, like we put like a lot of like, kind of little little twinkly stuff in our quote readings. So I, mm-hmm. I, I have to like make sure it matches with the music feeling, <laughs> too. So it's like it's tough. But that's why I do like four takes to make sure it's good. And also I butcher the first two times. I always butcher the, the quote. I always butcher it. So I have to make sure it gets it gets good. Got to give that pacing. We're joined today by our friend Philip from Hail Reaper, of course. Today is our second wrap-up episode, and we'll be talking about Pierce Brown's Lightbringer. You know this, and we're so excited to have you. Thank you. This, this is cool. I mean, I'm super pumped because I just started my third read-through, and I mean, I just started it. So I'm like chapter two or going to chapter three started it, but man, Cross, you were talking about you're oscillating in the moment i i was listening to the podcast you did with t-boom or thomas and ben and aaron and you're like is this my favorite book or not like iron gold or is it this one those are the two that you're weighing right yeah for me i was i was doing that in real time while reading the first two chapters Mm -hmm. there is like a magic quality to lightbringer i feel that I, i i don't have the words for just yet i haven't pinpointed why it feels like something beyond a red rising novel but there is a there is a transport of quality in this book, even in the first couple chapters. And I was like, good night. This Pierce, you freaking did it, man. <laughs> you freaking did it. So yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat as you. It's I'm still deliberating. Is it Iron Gold or is it Lightbringer? I, I have I need to probably reread Iron Gold again to get it more in like my recent memory. I think that's my state too. That's why I like didn't necessarily like fully land. I was like, I think it's Lightbringer. I don't know. Because I do think that I need to reread Iron Gold. I didn't do a full reread of the series before Lightbringer, unlike PJ and a lot of people. I didn't I either. Didn't have the time. Yeah. So yeah, I was I haven't read Dark I, Age in years. So it's just you know, it's I mean, I'm I'm familiar with the story, right? Like, I mean, all the books. I, there's a there's a real right. general familiarity with everything. So I didn't really feel the need for that, but Iron Gold is really fresh in my brain. And I don't know, you you all feel. I'll ask PJ first because I'm curious about this because you reread all the books, you know, leading up to Lightbringer. I felt that 
Iron Gold and Lightbringer have a constant call and response. I feel like those two books are talking back and forth to each other from the exploration of, you know, uh, lots of things. The ideas of honor, you know, the rim mm-hmm. core ideas of honor. You have the ideas of breaker versus builder kind of uh, you have the ideas of um, you know Darrow and his decisions with the docks and those that was internal kind of struggle, like losing his footing and then refining his footing. How do you feel about that? I, in retrospect, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I'm just starting to get into a reread of of Lightbringer at this point, but I think the the general sort of headspace that we we get through Darrow's perspective feels more similar, whereas Dark Age you get plunged into the depths of the reaper pretty aggressively and that doesn't come through as much in either of the books and i think that's probably a part of it but i like that call and response thought yeah i i totally agree with you i like the call and response i i think that through a lot i think that if you're going to give dark age a subtitle i would probably give it every like dark age everybody grows the fuck up real (laughs) fast yeah Um, (laughs) like every everyone has to kind of figure everything out um in the moment but i see more of a call and response between morningstar and lightbringer i feel like that's that's my like yes a lot of the things are directly set up and then paid off in lightbringer i think that that is definitely a call and response but to me it's the mirroring of obviously the luciferian tropes of the two being lightbringer and morningstar i don't know i just I, I feel it's that, interesting. Yeah, I, I would specifically say the second part of Morningstar, though, like not as much oh, the yeah, first part, right? Because like, we know the that, ice is out there. Yeah, yeah, we know the book. You know, Morningstar is kind of a fragmented book. It has like mm-hmm. this. It almost feels like three little mini books all kind of rolled into into one. Because you're going, you're going such different places with such different environments. But I think the end of Morningstar insanely echoes some of the ideas or like rather the call and response of of uh, Lightbringer and I like that a lot I, I mean especially with Cassius his whole arc it just feels like it starts kind of more or less I mean there's there's multiple starting points but the one that I find the most satisfaction in is is his you know his starting point in the dragon's maw and you know concluding essentially in the hangar like the, those that you can feel that very big through line from that point and all the way to the end of life. Well, it's even his hanging, right? Like yeah. I think it's literally when he's, well, you when he's can, yeah, again, you can go to yeah. different starting points, like yeah, you said, right. but but that one for me is the one that I feel really takes up. But you can go back to book one, like in, in terms yeah, of true. certain starting points with him, uh, and where he's at. And you know, you can go to talk about Julie and you can talk about all sorts of things. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I just love that. But that's the thing with Lightbringer, is that you can literally turn it around and it can face the previous five books and you can see pieces of it ripple throughout the entirety of the series and that i think maybe is the magic quality that i can't completely put my finger on maybe it's just that maybe it's that simple maybe it just contains all other five books and the mystery and the beauty of all the other five books in that yeah Yeah. and maybe that's it maybe that's like what i see yeah i i do want to bring it back to those comparisons too i think that like there is something to be said about like um like tinos to phobos as comparisons right like the battles therein are like the identical opposite leaders at those different times. And so we kind of see and we feel those things as they're happening. We don't really see all of Tinos, though, because of the way that that battle is portrayed mm-hmm. versus Phobos being much more immediate. And then you have all of the other comparisons that kind of emerge from there. I just I see them and like the docks versus the garter are like two very similar comparison points of, of decision making, of turning on allies to win 
right, to shortcut the long term mm-hmm. win, which I think are identical decisions from opposite characters. So there there's so much to me where Morningstar and Lightbringer are like in a screaming match, just like Darrow and Lysander are philosophically. Oh, man. So I we was, jumped right in. I yeah, love this. No, I, I mean, I'm, <laughs> this is what I live for, man. <laughs> so yeah. where did you land on? I mean, I, I listened to some of your episodes. I'll, I'll be you know blunt. I didn't listen to all of them. Again, I, I feel there's, there's a lot. There's like yeah. 11. We only did at like 33 hours. Yeah. We did six um, episodes. I mean, yeah. we, we released the first one on the day that Lightbringer came out. And so like like and then because we had arcs of it and we were able to read. And the by the way, the arc, the back half of the book is really different. The final, like mm. the last several chapters, not different in terms of story, but just like the there's a precision to the final version in the sentence structuring and just like there was a lot of little tiny little like work that was etched in over the top and like mm-hmm. the last line in the arc of Cassius's last line does not include brother of Darrow for example mm-hmm. so I mean that inclusion changes like a lot of what he's saying there by saying adding brother of Darrow and it, it's it's really makes it a little bit more it makes it more sincere it makes it more meaningful to me but there's stuff like that was just kind of changed but I'm glad that we we use the final version for the last couple episodes. We use like the actual release rather than the arc. But either way, for both of you, going through Lightbringer, I, I don't know this the answer to this. I, I only know your conclusions because of how you I listened to your brother's up, you know, excuse me, chapter, you know, 83, 84 episode, and I listened to your wrap up with uh, Ben, Aaron, and Thomas. How would you feel about Lysander? Like kind of through the journey though? Like, were you at all on board? Were you ever in a position where you felt like you had either trust or your rooting interest or anything that was more towards a positive? Yeah, totally. And I think I think me more than more than most people seem to portray. And I'm assuming that's because most people read the entirety of the story before they start talking React. about it. Yeah, I get um, so honestly, I did that too, PJ. We were reacting in real time, just like you would be. Where mm. we were we were recording chunks. Uh, um, rather reading chunks and then recording just like kind of how you're uh, just for that but we don't do that for any other book we did that for that book specifically yeah it's a, it's a different experience isn't it <laughs> very weird very weird but really cool because you get to see <laughs> how wrong or how right you were and mostly how wrong you were yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's a fun way to go about it but I had hope for Lysander throughout a lot of it and I, I think I can I can get myself to see his perspective a lot more because of the way that I went through it and like just trying to rationalize his decision-making, even though there's betrayal there and there's horrible, horrible decisions that he makes. There's always the thing to back up against, which is it's him or Atalantia in the end. It's not him or Darrow. It's not him or Virginia. It's him or Atalantia, which is what we really have to think about, which makes a much more complicated like problem to (laughs) to address. One is a, you know, a has a crazy savior complex. The other one's a sociopath. So like, which, which is the greater evil right there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And which one's which, by the way, I don't know. They might both be both. Well, by the end, you could, you could (laughs) say, that, yeah, I mean, because his decisions towards the end of the book are indefensible. Like, I want to meet the person that was like, nah, like that was that was a that was a fine choice. <laughs> like, like, no, it was not a fine choice. But none of those choices are good. But you can see why he makes them. Like, especially oh, like Atlas. 
incidentally forged his tool that he wanted. Like Atlas is getting his way through Lysander. He, he absolutely does. End. He absolutely yeah. does. I felt the way you did, PJ. I specifically chapter 33, Orlo of Gamma, the praise that he gives and offers him. He, he, you know, he upholds that red specifically, you know, one of the hell divers and, you know, has him, uh, you know, wear his cape and really praises him. But it's not just the public praise. It's that private praise that he offers him and says, like, you, you are part of me now. You're a part of my house now. Whatever you need, whenever you need it, I have you like truly have you. And for a gold to kind of bend the knee, even the smallest bit to a red mm-hmm. on any level, that was that really broke the archetype of what a society gold is completely shattered it. And I was like kind of not all in, but I was definitely rooting at that point yeah. by that point. And, and here's the funny thing. I think I, I've said this a couple of times, not sure when and where the prior chapter, he is in my mind, w- w- terrible because he's in that conversation with Virginia and he is like kind of trying to flex on her. And she's like, little boy, shut up the whole time and he's so nauseating in that prior chapter and you're like and (laughs) so there's this kind of almost just this back and forth with the character the whole time where you're like oh this guy's kind of cool and they're like oh this guy sucks and this guy's kind of cool and he sucks yeah Uh, and by the end you know i don't even say he sucks because i think cross is correct cross said you know you can see why those decisions were made were made even if i think they're indefensible but you can there's a there's a clarity to the decisions being made, even from that skewed, warped view of his own brain. Yeah, I, I'm curious there where you stand on this because Cross and I, I think, have have differing opinions on it. He seems to view this as sort of the crux of where Lysander turns in his brain, which is the hmm. the battle scene where he sees the green. I think in her. That's apartment. a rough look. That's a very rough look. It's a really bad look, but it's also completely internal. And he's in like the, the depths of war for not for the first time, but, but that's for the when first the reality really, really comes out. Yeah. But, but you can like convince yourself to be more ruthless than you truly are in, in moments of like, even Darrow's never that bad. You know, like the depths of Darrow don't hit those same kind of lows because that isn't who he is at the core. I mean, it, I, yes and no. There, there's man, the point where he's being poisoned on, on his way down to Athena's lair where he's like kind of almost snaps and wishes that he had killed everybody. It, it's, yeah, a, it's a, a good call though, BJ. Yeah, it's but a good, it's yeah. the same person. Yeah. I know, I'm kidding. Like, true, like, yes, we, they're... they're we, we've had a lot of conversations about differing personalities there, but it's it truly is the same person. So I, I'm, I can forgive that sort of internal monologue of him psyching himself up in this, in this moment of battle. And I don't necessarily see it as a, a shine of his true self, hmm. but I can understand how it could be portrayed that way. I, I don't have a strong opinion on on that specifically, but I have experienced that. And I do experience that. I used to play basketball like throughout high school, you know, third grade through high school, really competitively. And, you know, never even touched or sniffed anything like, you know, amateur professional or professional, of course, never even got close to that level. But just the psyching up of oneself, I've experienced that. I'm, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to freaking rake these guys with the coals. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, dunk on their faces. I don't care. Like, I don't, I want to make them cry. I want to, you know, like that, that internal, like psyching up of yourself just to get that competitive edge 
go in there saying, I'm scoring 20 tonight and I'm going to break ankles and I'm just, and I, I want these guys to be embarrassed. And that, like, I know some people are listening to me say that stuff right now. Like, this is, this person's a psycho. Um, it's just more or less just, a cause that's not who I am. I'm actually like a pretty docile person. I've never been in a fight in my life. Um, <laughs> I've never like punched or hit or struck <laughs> anyone or anything of the sorts. I'm, I, I'm, I'm fairly soft and fairly emotional, but I try to get into a headspace that is much different than myself for those purposes to actually like try to psych myself up. So I'm not sure though. I don't, I, I, I haven't thought about it or marinated on it enough to, but it, I, when I read it, I think probably what Cross might say is probably more or less how I felt about it the first two times I read the book. When I read it the third time, my eyes and ears will be probably far more open to the conflict there. And I'm, I'm curious to see how, what I come up with. All right. Truly, I think that when I believe that he changes is the Roan revelation or when like Roan starts to come into question. Roan, dude. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Like. That's that's when I think Lysander really kind of like between that and Glorosties, I think is when he really breaks. But that said, I do think that his true colors show for the first time, like his internal prejudices show for the first yeah. time when he's falling through that house. That's how I would describe it to, to your point, PJ. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I it's it, that's so interesting. I never and I did three sports competitively throughout most of high school. I never had that mentality even even like the Ironman races or anything like that. I don't know. That's so interesting. I've never. But maybe your, that's why I like didn't were, take first all the time. We're not like contact. <laughs> they're individual. Yeah, they're soccer. That, that's a little bit. Was, oh, yeah. Soccer. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Soccer is really contact. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like depending on how you play it. But yeah, that's. Yeah. Yeah. Mid and goalie. So nice. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah. Depending on the day. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yeah, one of the things that Bingham and I are doing this year is we're going to join a soccer league too. That's so, sick. Getting back into that, which will be fun. It's another reason to do all the other things. Also, resolutions in the Devil's Cut. Go yeah. listen. Patreon simplified down to one simple tier. We we cut it down Smart. really simply for the year just to make it easy for everyone. We're doing a little bit more in the form of like live stuff and whatnot, but doing less than like the full recorded. So that's kind of the game plan for 2024. Wow, it's 2024. Fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> surprise i didn't even really have lysander on the document for the record and i love that we just like hopped right into that (laughs) deep end it's impossible not to when you think about Mm -hmm. this text but yeah i mean my Um, my favorite pov in the book was easily lysander um i agree because like i i get a little upset about the the sometimes the reddit user and i'm not trying to call this x reddit user out specifically I'm just asking you, Reddit user, when you when you say that you get to like a Lysander chapter and you, you know, you like and, and I'm going to say I can't hear them talking, but they're they're saying things like oh, every time I get a Lysander chapter, I just groan or like I have to push through it. And I'm like, you realize that most of the main action set pieces happen through his POV and all the big, the, you know, the big reveals, the the turns and twists, like the everything tectonic in the story really truly happens through his pov i have no idea why you would have any you know any kind of lament to get through a lysander chapter in these books or this book specifically it's it's probably the arguably the most fascinating stuff i just don't i don't know i i know what he can he can be a really rough hang i get it but as far as just the storytelling told through his pov it's fascinating it'd be like I groaning little... every time you see like 
the inside of the Empire ships and like following Darth Vader in in Star Wars, like following he, Anakin for all of the prequel. Yeah, right? yeah like exactly. You know where he is. Yeah. Um, favorite over time. I I I've always been given like our final like this is my favorite scene in Lightbringer and. It was a three-way tie for me, essentially, but I edged it out. I gave Deanna's speech in Lycos as my number one favorite, like, moment scene of the book. Ooh, but mm, that's good. But chapter 84, Hangar 17B, is also, like, a number two, if not one. And, and, and then, additionally, as far as just pure writing goes, I said this, and I will contend to say this, the single greatest moment of Pierce Brown's published writing career has been, where have all the shepherds gone? It is, it is incredible. Mm. It is fascinating. It is an action scene. It is multi-perspective. It, there's, it, it's a swirling of events all within a small room, kind of guided through Lysander's speech. I, I cannot get over how phenomenal and how well-written that is. And did you both feel that way about that chapter? Or am I just kind of, am I gassing it for no reason? Or like, because I felt that it was this, it was his best moment as a writer, like period. I mean, I think we succinctly, I, I can totally agree with you. That falls into my top three speeches in the series. This book is filled with a number of incredible speeches. Yeah. I think I have a tough time choosing between the weight of guilt and where have the shepherds gone. Yeah, both great. Um, as, as speeches, but... The Shepherds is the single greatest political intrigue moment that like Pierce has pulled off. Yeah, I think like Dave Red Doves is incredible because of all of the other machinations, oh, but it's murder in the yeah, end. Yeah. The the way that instead you get this like betrayal and portrayal therein of of seeing the sides and the the swings across the room shift. It's just incredible. Yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. Top three for sure. Going to Atlas and the Rafters, going back to Lysander Floor, going to Julie mm-hmm. Bologna, going to Atalantia, going to Ajax, going to X, you know, name your name your Carthii or name your or, or name your your Votum. Name name these people and they're all mm-hmm. getting their own little tidbits and their own perspectives and, and their or Ap- Apollonius. Just there's so much representation there. It feels so seamless. And it feels oh, the specter of Apollonius showing up yeah. as, as the hollow figure when it, he elects him as the, the commander of the invasion. Oh, I, I don't feel that I've been able to voice how I feel about this still. I just feel like it was so mm-hmm. it's such a feat of writing that I just I, I just want to tell you guys about it rather. And you already know because you already read it like multiple <laughs> times. But I'm like, hey, guys, remember how cool that was? Like, that's like uh, genuinely how I feel. It was so sick. Yeah. It, yeah. So we, we've talked at length about all of the speeches and how great of a speech writer Pierce is, obviously. Yeah. And by Especially how great book. of a speech giver all of his characters are. But that scene specifically is simultaneously an amazing speech and almost on par with action scenes and how the like it is an action scene development is without action it's which is yeah. perfect that's that's how we described it in the episode for the record pj was like this is an action scene without the action you can see this on screen like game of thrones i believe that is almost a verbatim Probably. quote of what pj said i, I yeah. told him that we met him in may and we hung out with him for a day and then we hung out with him again in november for a day and we had pl- so much time to talk off the podcast as well as on and when we hung out Pierce in May, he, he like pulled us out during a bathroom break. He pulled us into the hallway and said, okay, and now we're off mic. We're, you know, like, we're just like, tell me what you think about Lightbringer and where, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like that. And I started with where have all the shepherds gone? I told him like, 
this is this is it. You've done it. You have outdone yourself in every way, shape, and form. And here's why. And he literally pulled his um his sweatshirt back, pulled like literally two inches from my face, held his arm up to my face, and to show me the hair standing up on his arm because he was so excited that I was able to communicate. And he was like, and he looks at me, and goes. Like so intense. His look was just like super nice. He's like, that's exactly how I wanted it to feel. And I was like, you did it. Like you, you, you did yeah. it. Magic. Like it was, yeah. it was everything that you, what you wanted it to be it came across, you know, in every way. And, and I, so I told him it was the best thing he's ever written. And he, I think, I don't, I don't know if he agreed, <laughs> but he at least was super pumped about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I feel like when you get on those big places like Reddit, you know, just cause it's, and I only talk about it because it's where so many howlers are just in one location. I don't see people talking about it. And I'm like, am I doing this wrong? Am I reading this book wrong? Like, like is it, is it, am I, uh, I, I'm curious, like, why are we talking about some of the best moments in this book for what they are? I know they're from Lysander, but this is, this is a I think great some moment. Some of that, I, I truly believe that some of that stems from the fact that this started as a single POV series and then evolved into a multi. So there is a right answer and it was our POV, right? Yeah. And there was never any sort of, I think that this is where, where this blooms from because I did a little experiment roughly six months ago before Lightbringer came out. I just went and I clawed through Reddit to find everything that mentioned the Jackal point of view. And uh. so many people wanted a Jackal point of view in the original trilogy. They're like, this is what I would love. I would love a Jack. This is... We are getting not the jackal, but we're getting a Paul Atreides basically point of view from Dune in the form of Lysander. Like, and so we're comparing our our Paul Atreides of whom is fighting against the system to the Paul of Atreides who is upholding the system, and that's so good. It's so good. I yeah. I I think that it comes down to the simple fact that he has to be a prissy kid. He has to be all of these like negative things yeah. because that's where he came from, and you. Pierce can't like foundationally ignore those things for him. And I think that's what turned people off to Iron Gold is because he does come off like the entitled kid for a lot of it. And then finally wakes up in Dark Age and then becomes the character in Lightbringer that he should have been or that he is and should be. Yeah. Even if it's despicable. And I I just I can't help but think that people haven't read enough despicable characters, maybe. Maybe because that's like it. Lysander is he's bad, but he I mean we're about to start the first law, and there are, everyone is fucking bad in the first law. <laughs> we across you and I were talking so, about um, yeah. uh, Steinbeck, like through Steinbeck, yeah. And there's yeah, like yeah. Kathy Trask from East of Eden, like makes Lysander look like a puppy. Yes. <laughs> like, God. It's like she's <sighs> nuts. And I mean, yeah, like talking about despicable, and it's so much more grounded at the same time. So, and, and it's not based in a, a false reality, based on a very real reality. And her actions are far more tangibly awful because you could see them happening and feel them happening in your own reality. So, yeah, like I think you're probably right. And to add to what you said, like I, I have no interest in a jackal POV of any sorts. I would never want that. I, I think that'd be so one dimensional. It'd be like it. it like what this character is maybe minorly conflicted maybe but really like it just kind of like it's just basically what having like having an atalant or atalantia as you might say point of view <laughs> it's like it just like whichever one yeah <laughs> atalanta atlanta <laughs> yeah atlanta atlanta yeah yeah right. no i just feel like it'd be so i think so boring and so one note if that were to ever happen uh but and i don't think we'll get that in red god for people that are hoping that are clamoring for for that potential no 
Yeah, I uh, all I wanted to say there was that I totally sympathize and empathize in both contexts because it's like it is it sucks because it is it's it, part of the fun of the story is engaging with all of the perspectives. Right. And people just shutting off the engagement with a perspective like truly I can't imagine it because you're turning off a part of the story that is so critical and so important. PJ and I talked about this a lot in the chapter in which Lysander and Darrow directly interact at Diomedes behest. Yeah. And that the Shield is of one of the coolest. Yes. That is one of the coolest moments in the series because you get multi POV on the same moment and you get so few of those mm-hmm. where Darrow is interacting with someone else. There's one that happens from Lyria's perspective here where it's like very direct to very clear and it's not just via a hollow thing like we get to see darrow from the outside they're oh i crave those moments and i can't believe that people are so like be critical of lysander he fucking sucks lysander is not a good dude he's going like he's an awful person we know this by the end of the story but that doesn't mean that you can't enjoy the negative right you can't enjoy you should be able to enjoy or understand what pierce is going for I don't know. I just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because mm. the story, if, it, if Marvel has this issue. This is why I don't like Marvel, like movies, for this issue. They don't have good villains. There doesn't feel like there's a stake. That's a, there's yep. no stakes yeah. ever. Like, the, I, I, mm-hmm. I always know, I have, I have always know what's going to happen, typically. I mean, there are... The best movies are the ones with villains. With The v- best Marvel movies, the best DC movies. With all real villains, r- with real weight behind them, with real gravity that they could change, literally change something that could affect the way you feel about the story happening. I, I've, you know, I've not seen a lot of Marvel movies, to, to be honest with you. But what I have seen, I don't feel like there's any threat or risk because like maybe a, even a, like a Lysander or an Atalantia or whatever, you know, whatever that might be. Like I feel threatened by the fa. I feel threatened by those characters, like literally. <clears throat> and I am scared when they're on the page sometimes because I don't know what they're going to do. Atlas? I can't believe I missed yeah. that one. But yeah, yeah, Atlas, like that's yeah. the number one, right? You don't know what's what they're imparting to the story, what they're going to impart next. And that's that's why I have a hard time or I struggle with even just like the idea, like you kind of touched on this cross, the idea that people, and I don't, I don't have an actual issue with this. So please don't misinterpret my words. I just, I loved the first three books when I encountered them for the first several times. And now if I had a choice of reading books one through three or books four, five, and six, there's no contest. It'd be books four, five, and six. And I could, and if I could just, if I only had, you know, someone presented me with two piles and one had, you know, one, two, three, and four, five, six. You can only read one going forward forever. It would, it, I would, I would only choose four, five, and six. You even need seven to make that choice. Yeah, I totally I agree. agree. Yeah, you. you don't even need seven for that. Yeah. And it's mostly because, you know, again, things that both of you have touched on. Uh, you talk, it's talking about politics. It's talking about ideology, morality, all these things that actually ask something of you and actually are saying, is, where is this going and, and how would I act in this situation? And, and I mean, Cross, you, you, you mentioned you listened to it, but you know that the when we talked about mercy with Pierce on our last one. Oh, yeah. The right. idea of mercy and what its role is in the series mm-hmm. and like and that is being explored definitely in the first three books a little bit, especially a little bit more in Morningstar. There's some quotes that directly relate to that. Uh, I can specifically point to a moment uh, with uh, remind me of the name. Either one of you uh, 
Vixus in the elevator before he, yes. yes there's a moment yep. of there's a moment of is mercy something I should employ here or should I not but that idea gets so much more flushed out and that's a the philosophical idea that we all need to be talking about and asking ourselves especially in the world that we live in where there's when is mercy able to be employed when should we employ it? and and how do we do that when it's when it needs to happen we live in a very tumultuous space right now and we're coming into an election year where that's going to be even crazier that is an actual legit I'm trying qu- to forget that actively but i'm i'm yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm i'm dreading it too <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> but yeah. But that is an actual question that I think that Pierce puts in his books that I should be asking myself as the year unfolds, as we get closer to a, so, a an actual what I think is a, a pretty disturbed person running for uh, running to become the president again. Like, you know, I mean, I, and we all know who I'm talking about, too. He's a, he's a he's a deviant and I'm mm-hmm. scared of that reality. But there's a there's a question to be asked about mercy in that and in, inside that uh, book and and also inside of my own world and i'm not asked those questions as directly in the first three books or i'm only confronted with them i'm pepper they're little peppers yeah. but i'm i'm heavily confronted with those ideas in books four five and six and those peppers almost become seeds as well because they sure they they grow in four five and six they they pay off a, a little bit or they they shy they show their head a little bit if they don't pay off but there pardon for bringing up a different author here but there is a question of like we we've brought it up on the show a few times before but Brandon Sanderson and his dislike of redemption yeah i i and, I, and <laughs> never read any of his books by the way i've been told Fair so enough. many times but but yeah i've heard that he does not like that it's right. not and I, I, I'm, got a fundamental I'm curious yeah. if that's a more prevalent like view within like the reading community and that that is part of why some people don't want to confront like negative POVs. Yeah. I, I still believe in the Lysander redemption arc. I mean, I don't believe that it will happen. But I believe in the idea of it happening. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, look and redemption you have to you have to say <sighs> redemption looks different. To a lot in a lot of different scenarios and circumstances, it's not a universal thing. I don't know how Sanderson, you know, his utilization or rather lack of utilization is for it. But there's so many. I mean, Darth Vader is a great example of how I think Lysander's redemption can be used. It's like no one knows, no one knows other than one guy, and it's Luke Skywalker knows about the actual quote unquote redemption that that took place within this person and he gets to see his force ghost and it's like cool that's kind of a happy ending but really the man lived his life for evil for his entire adult life but but we know or one person knows i think that that's a plausible outcome and i think there's so much we don't know about lysander still he can play the freaking piano like he can play the freaking piano (laughs) that i i I, (laughs) like he doesn't know a lot about himself and I think the Red God is obviously yeah. the time for discovery. And with that discovery, there's a lot of of allowability for change for the character. Um, mm-hmm. But that could be a little disappointing to some. And maybe, and I've even back and forth in this idea. Is it not, do we need to keep it more tight because it's one book left? We need to kind of sidestep those things a little bit and just go good versus evil. Let's go. I'm okay with that too. 
I just want to. I'm also okay with uh, this fourth book becoming a fourth and fifth book and just (laughs) continuing to split. (laughs) Yeah. Continuing to drag Mm. it out. I don't know that that's, that's greed on my part, I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually ready for for some finality personally. How about you? Are you ready for for finality? I, okay. I want to, I want to address what you were just saying before this, but I will start with, yes, I'm good with an end. I would like for this end. It could spin longer, but I do think that to, to your point on Lysander, my, this is such a jump. We even hit any of the points of the document, <laughs> Wait, which is I'm, just I'm fucking proud hilarious of us. to me. Yeah. I've, I've got some okay. like in, really in-depth thoughts in the well, document, and it's like, cool, we're just going to, we'll get there eventually. Do this. Do this for me. But go. To, I want yeah. to hear your take. Let's cross-talk about it, and then let's yeah. go on to something you have specifically on the sheet. No, no. We, we can do whatever the fuck. Okay, we're doing cool. so well. This is so good. I don't care. <laughs> These were just ideas, and you know, if we don't do them now, we'll do them later. It's great. Yeah. But I, I do think that, to your point on Lysander, and sort of like the potential of a redemption arc. PJ, thank you for bringing this up. It is one of my biggest points of contention with Brandon Sanderson meta perspective as an author, not necessarily always in his texts. He actually has redemption arcs inside of his texts, which is weird because he doesn't like fully agree with them at certain points and whatever. But I do actually think in my head, a perfect ending and Pierce is going to deliver a better ending than what my head oh, can deliver. Yeah, it's going to be totally so unexpected cool too, I guess. Yeah. I bet, rather. But in my head, I see us showing back up on the Lightbringer and the ship. The ship is the end, right? To some degree. And it's the same confrontation that he has with Roke. And he spares his life. And Lysander, it's mercy, right? He chooses mercy for Lysander. Lysander has come to a conclusion because of the rest of the story and the unfolding of his life before and everything else that he's seen. And then is able to unwind that. And he shoots Lysander into the sun with the Lightbringer. Because Lysander accepts that fate and hmm. Darrow gets off the boat. That is not going to be the ending. I think Darrow will die. There are so many other endings that I believe are more probable. But I do see potential for a Lysander redemption. And I think it is silly innately to rule it out. You don't have to accept it. Forgiveness is for each individual to accept. Sure. But I do see that as a potential. I believe Lysander has already come face to face with that mercy. And he oh, shot. He has. He shot it. He, in the he face. shot mercy. Yeah, <laughs> right. I can see that too. Nineteen times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I, I, think, I I really believe that Cassius did not intend at all to yeah, kill Lysander. You've said that before. I I listened to that, and yeah. I still don't know. And I didn't ask Pierce when he was sitting two feet away from me. And because the reason why I didn't <laughs> ask him is because I knew he wouldn't give me an answer for it. And I I so mm. I I was yeah. He doesn't right. He was very clear when we asked him. It's about interpretation. Exactly. It was very clear in these kinds of conversations we had with him. Mercy, the justification for it, the use of it, different things. He he left things ambiguous intentionally. He wants us he wants us to wrestle. He wants us to literally have conversations like we're having right now. He wants that. Yeah. If okay. we were can, to I, act- can I make it a little bit less ambiguous? Sure. I think Lysander in that in those li- final moments believes that cassius is like handing out some mercy even if cassius wasn't he he recognizes he's not acting as quickly as he he should be and like and he still goes through with it so i think even if cassius wasn't acting in mercy i think lysander had an inkling that that could have been a possibility yeah and like still still decided The, the speculation 
there's so many opportunities for it about what we think, what could happen, what will happen, whether it's Cross's prediction, whether it's your idea for like what happened in that specific moment. And, and, and I like that there's a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for speculation there. I, I think I'll just throw my hat in the ring on something completely different, but also speculative. I'd be really disappointed by Red God if it if it was if our characters, the characters that we have grown up with and love and trust, I, I, I do, weren't merciful and weren't sacrificial in the last book. I, I'd be very disappointed if it was just about triumph and overcome overcoming the, 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 the evil in the world, which I do want as well. But I want it to be something more. I think the idea of live for more echoes back to that. Every every perfect person in this series, and I can point to four. Eo is perfect. I know she has you know, what. Okay, personal stuff aside, Eo is perfect. Ragnar is perfect. Alex is perfect, and Cassius is perfect. And they all have the commonality they all share is they are completely willing to do anything and everything, including killing themselves. Essentially, whether they know it or not for other people they live for more at every turn every corner they can if that if that if that line of that idea stops with cassius and doesn't extend out to mustang darrow severo and victor i'd be very disappointed i want i want Mm -hmm. the four of them to have to also struggle with that the way the other four characters i just mentioned struggle with it i want them to have to think about mercy i mean i know they already have a lot I would say specifically Mustang and specifically Daryl, but I want them to be even more conflicted by it. I want them to have to wrestle. I have a quote. Yeah, I'm, I have a quote. I'm real quick. so down. And then I'll, I'm I'll let you so answer. Sick. I'll let you answer. Please. All right. So just just lean into this because we've talked a lot about this and we actually spent so much time interrogating this that we almost incidentally split the weight of guilt into two episodes because it went for so fucking long while we were I talking listen, about yeah, it. I to that. Oh, so good. Anyway, the quote here. Because PJ and I were interrogating this partially because I thought about it at the end, but there are there are many dreams that are interrogated over the course of this in a similar way that you guys have interrogated the dream of EO and sort of the concept of these various forgivenesses. So Athena is or sorry, Darrow is talking and during the council, the weight of guilt to you. It's nine five pages, so I'm not going to read it all here, but we'll hit chunks to start. There's a layered dream. I believe in the dream of Eo, the dream of Ares, the dream of Ragnar, that we are all born with the right to choose our own destinies, to live in peace, to pass down that same freedom to our children. And there's so much more to that. But there there are other dreams that are peppered throughout. I think Alexander, I think Virginia is, is instead of a dream, it's hope because they believe fundamentally differently. A mathematician and atheist versus, you know, people that are quasi-religious or ethical or I'm moral. I'm so excited or whichever for the Red God plot it. points about that. Oh, it's going to be fun. But uh, I I adore this idea of the multifaceted dream. And so as such, I agree with you that I think that especially the path that Darrow is on over the course of this book, it has to end in some either some sort of like sacrificial or mercy or forgiveness or something. It's because that is the, the man books. that he has become again. Right. Yeah, exactly. It, so and it, and it may be it may be a self-admonishment it may be the only way to win is to shoot myself and my enemy into the sun sure. you know there are so many different things but yeah I, I get actually mad when people have misinterpreted cassius's storyline if you don't mm-hmm. understand what he's doing in his final moments i think you honestly have not fully grappled with some of the core ideas of the entire series like the series, I, I think the series at large 
you're missing components of it. And he's just the latest person to enact this type of sacrifice. But it started in chapter six, chapter five slash six with a red girl. And it's continuing. It's, it's pervasive. It's keep, it keeps going. There's momentum to what this, this idea is throughout the series over and over and over again. And it comes up in big moments and small moments, but it's still available. It's tangible. It's tactile. And if you don't understand, I, 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 I get so frustrated by this, but if you're not, I'm trying not to rant, rant, but if you like, just because I've had people talk to me about it, whether it's through DM or whether, again, if I've seen it on Reddit or other places, it's just like, what are you reading? Like, where, where are we? We need to talk about like what books you've been reading because they're not the books I've been reading. And I want you to see the books the way I've been reading. And I'd like to see them from your perspective, too. I, I want to cross talk about it. But yeah, I think I, I think I'm 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 dancing around a bigger rant. and I need to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> we love the big rants. Yeah, That's I'm, what I'm our not going to do That's that That's why right we now. run for so yeah. long. Yeah. We're big ranters. That's that's the whole thing. PJ, I know that I just spoke a bunch. I want to give you space, of course, yeah, to, sorry, to answer the mercy question or to like discuss mercy as you think about like the end of the series, too. I think mercy is... Or the dream. Well, I, I think that's all... I think it's all tied together. Truly, I, I think... There needs to be mercy involved in uh, some sort of conclusion because otherwise, otherwise, whatever we're upholding is what does it point back to? It, it points back to uh, I we we talked about this off air a little bit, but we, it points to absolutism. Yeah, <laughs> and it, it points to just problematic. I don't know how to articulate it well enough, but it, like I, I feel like there needs to be mercy in order for me to truly feel like I can feel good about these people that I've been rooting for for so long. I, I'm more concerned with their honor, to borrow a Cassiusism, than I'm concerned with them winning. Far more concerned with that. Even if they don't win. If literally the series ended with the society winning, but... Darrow, Virginia, Victra, and several upheld the dream of EO. I would be absolutely okay with that. I really, truly would be. I don't need them to have victory in in that classical sense if they have victory in the moral moral stance. Yeah, and I think that a victory on paper at the cost of most of the lives of the people that they're fighting for isn't a worthwhile victory at all. Yeah, I think there will there. I don't know if it'll happen, but if there's a situation where like, like actually it has, it has happened with Virginia and with the parlay. I, I believe that she was acting in the best interest of her people and even the people at the whim of the society remnant in not following through with a slugging match that would kill just a ton more people. I, I, I think that's the sort of headspace that I want my protagonist to be in. Mm-hmm. I, wow, this is, this is so interesting. It's opening up so many different ideas in my head. I love this conversation that we're surrounding ourselves with around sort of the dream of EO and the idea of mercy. And as we continue to walk through, sort of the the Mustang perspective and all these different components. One of the things that I've thought about in the middle of this conversation is 
and it's never it's never talked about i think openly but there are, there are likely like the dream of akari and the dream of selenius as like justifications inside of like the different ideas right and what they thought society should be i think that iron goldism leads up to like sort of the the dream of of akari and i think that there are only three golds living or past that have ever lived up to the dream of akari hmm. Are you going to make us guess or are you going to tell us? <laughs> I mean, I, we all know Cassius did. Cassius <laughs> okay, does. Gotcha. Because of honor, like you were saying, yeah. which is why I'm interrogating this idea to begin with. Cassius just embodies that throughout the entirety of Iron Gold. And he does. He proves it again here. Mm-hmm. Right. He is that Iron Gold. Second in my head is Mustang, um, because I think Mustang embodies a lot of those priorities and, and treats people equanimously and like thinks about these things very actively. I think she's the definition of honor, despite being potentially a mathematician sometimes inside of that. And I'd as pr- a third... She proves it in this book, where I don't think she did prior books. Her, She's so much more flushed yeah. out and more, more, more dimensional in this book than I think prior. So yeah, I, I agree. I think so too. I think that this is what finally le- lends credence to that. I think that we all thought it. You know what I mean? Like I think that we all thought that that's who she was, but we finally saw it yeah. here. And the final one is... Diomedes. I mean, it can't not be Diomedes. Diomedes just is that embodiment of like mercy, learning and understanding and grace, I think, more than anything else that turns him into an iron gold. I, I I'm think cu- like keep going, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I'm curious why you didn't include Lorne on the list. So Lorne fails because he is willing to bend his ethics for the ends of society. He did for a long time. He chose the path. Um, of least resistance up until a point which he he ended up going that way with the end of his life but i don't think he himself embodies an iron gold for the entirety of the time of his life i'll I'll throw (laughs) another one in there and it's funny because i'm not actually not and not endeared to this character as much as other people are i would say kavix telemanis as well probably would would at least he's not not a bad pick he he would kind of fit into that mold uh, a little bit more uh, but i think that i think that also Sounds people are, might come after me for this one. He's kind of more of a follower than a leader. The other people that you mentioned are more Definitely. in that leadership vein, and like leadership is like not universal, right? Like we think of Mustang as leader, you think of Diomedes leader, Cassius, not so much a leader, but leading the way, and you know, and and what you were speaking of. But I think that, I think that aligning yourself with that virtue as Cavix does, regardless of why i think it's because it's basically his daughter is the line with that he i think could, you could slip into that arena as well but i wouldn't i wouldn't put him on that same pedestal that you did with the, the, the prior three it, just for the exercise yeah. but he's really close yeah. he's handing out the medals if anything you're definitely right uh, and alexander is right there as a distant yeah. fifth um i just think with, without enough time to prove yeah himself, it just kind of more more in the light screen of the slash page time yeah. would have probably given us that more more definition yeah. to them man i Again, there's like again, it just there's so much to talk about the book. I had a, I had a. Can I can I just go on something completely different now? Yeah, do totally. it because because I I don't want to like cut you off at all cross, but at the same time I I have a take that I want opinion on, and I want to sure. I want to test it out here. Okay, so read through the book the second time, and at the end of the second time, I got to this, the moment that you will both remember. With between the private conversation between Gaia, between Diomedes, and with Darrow. And it's this confronting of the, I, the, the new vow where Diomedes allows the Hashta, I believe, to go around his own neck and said, if you, 
you know, go for it. Like I, I'm, this is who I am now. So if you're going to, if you're going to do that, you need to pull the trigger or rather toggle the switch. I was like so impressed by this moment because when I guess from a writing standpoint, more than I'm a story standpoint, but I think another quality that I'm really loving about Lightbringer is that, and you mentioned it cross a little earlier, just a moment ago is how much more like alive in some ways, Virginia feels or like how, like she kind of like, we knew she was this person, but now it was put in motion in a really visible way for us to see who she really was uh, in that sense. The counter is true on other sides where we get to see more of what people are, what they think, what their ideology is, what they, what they, what they choose to endorse. And in this moment, where Gaia has the opportunity to confront the person who upended the worlds, who betrayed her son, who had led to his demise. She utilizes this time by saying, your belief in capitalism and the free market are stupid. <laughs> like that is, that is the choice that she makes and yeah. scolds him and lectures him on how small his mind is. Uh, she says something that's took an epoch to build i believe this is like this you know their their universe and mm-hmm. the reason why capitalism the reason why the free market is stupid is because of its in- incredibly negative effects on environmentalism and that is what she points to she says you will kill the environment with these ideals you will absolutely shred it to pieces and i was like what a, like you know initially you're thinking what a weird way to choose to spend this time of confrontation but then when you take a step back it makes so much sense it makes so much sense that this is how a a raw character now having this larger picture of what the rim stands for what the raws stand for what the garter is and how special it is that environmentalism is as a huge component of like you know kind of their ideology their beliefs their their values is upholding and maintaining and governing uh, the environment and, and essentially. And I was like, man, this is so cool that you get to like you, your point cross, you get to see someone kind of step into who they are more. And I feel like you can, you can do that with almost every character in this book. You could do it with Gaia Al-Ra of all people as well. I fired I really a shot like into the, into the dark there, didn't I? Okay. No, <laughs> no, I'm giving PJ time. Okay. No, I, I, yeah. It, so this isn't an answer, but it is related and it's because I'm I'm just starting to reread right now. And in Lysander's first chapter, he's talking about the Ladon mm-hmm. and the radiation and everything. And we we kind of discussed this a little bit when I when we brought it up, but he is very excited at the end of the book to exploit the garter's resources mm. and and create this new eden essentially at the ladon and i think is completely forgetting like i did that it is a barren radioactive wasteland <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i it just is the folly there is more relevant on on another read through mm-hmm. but yeah i I've always appreciated the Ross take on, I I guess I wouldn't have pointed it out as environmentalism to begin with, but on 
conservationism, I guess. Yeah, and, that's probably a better term. On, the economy, regardless. Yeah, yeah. But specifically talking about resources and and being on a level playing field and serving the same food that any constituent of the rim would have at their feasts with other golds, it's it feels very grounded and honorable compared to the core golds and their opulence. So I, I yeah. like that pointing that out as as a solid foundational like understandable argument that she would make in that moment Mm -hmm. i really appreciate that argument i appreciate you bringing it up because it also gets into something that i i think is like it, it kind of we've been echoing this theme continually throughout this episode actually of perspectives and one of the important perspectives within the story is that perspective and it's tough to ignore because that's what so many of our opposition from Darrow's perspective are fighting for. They're trying to maintain their balance of life one way or another. And in Gaia's mind, literally, it's so funny that you're bringing this up as conservation, but she's literally the the diametric version of the Roman goddess of Earth, right? Gaia is fighting for conservation. Wow, how <laughs> mind-blowing a comparison. But as, as sort of a literal symbol... There's also the the sort of idea that at the root of a lot of those ideologies of central and caste system like control is that you can perpetuate something like a sustainable environment. Like one of the core roots of Karl Marx's manifesto, Das Kapital, is is like that idea. Naturalism is like a component of of true communism or socialism or like all these other things. And so, of course, she's evoking that as like you are sacrificing this at the altar of whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, oh, man, this this text is just rife with like multi-textual interpretation that if you're just staring it down from the POV perspective, I feel bad for you because you have to be approaching it from like a a worldly perspective and you just get so much more out of it if you can interrogate it that I way. I think that's what and negotiate with that's it. That's what I be, like I like about the moment or like rather like the the work that was done off the page. And I feel like that's a light lightbringer. Mm-hmm. The fact that it took 4 years to to make essentially to create and release, you can feel all that work being done off the page. You can feel that that multi-dimensional multi-perspective even though it is a Daryl POV chapter, but doesn't it feel more than that, right? It feels more than than just a Daryl feeling. It's 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 almost like Daryl allowing Gaia to say all this stuff to to him. He doesn't have to. He could he could do something right in that moment. He could be the Daryl that we've you know we've known for so long and do something probably incredibly brash and mess it up, but it would at least silence her or whatever it is. I just think that there was just there's so much intentionality between each character whether it's Virginia, who we know so much better now, what's Lysander, we know so much better now, Atlas, we know so much better now, Cassius, and then even these tertiary characters are just so much more explained and they offer so much more, or I don't believe that was a lot of the case in you know some of the prior books. We, we, they were there, they were, they were used in, in, in ways to not just prod the story forward, but they're there to add to the world, but now they have like a real voice inside of like, like a book like Lightbringer. Yeah, I could not agree more. I guess that is. I guess going back to what I was saying real fast, that wasn't necessarily a take or something. I just something that I wanted to try to talk through. 
I don't know if it like landed necessarily, and that's okay. I'm sorry if that it didn't, but I think that's okay. But I, I just, I've been so, I guess it's just really more of me being impressed by, by Lightbringer, by Pierce. That's what it is. Like, no, when we're speechless, it's because you're correct for the record, <laughs> not because you're wrong. Okay. It's, and it's okay to be, I, I, I don't, I like, here's no, the thing about words and whiskey that I actually do like, especially, I mean, there's many things I like about it. You are very reflective and you allow that, uh, you allow opportunity for silence. Uh, you allow, I know PJ does that. He's very introspective and you can, t- you can see when you're on video, you don't get to see this because uh, people aren't probably watching these YouTube videos. You can actually see. They don't PJ, exist yeah, yet. You can see but, PJ thinking yeah. and like the real, the real actual thoughts like being formulated. And then this comes out with this really unique perspective. I like, I like being able to see you guys formulate those ideas and then actually disseminate them. It's really fun. I mean, you don't get to see that if you're not watching a video, but there's no, I know you guys do a YouTube channel, but it's mostly just the, it's just audio with the, it's just, it's just the audio. We, yeah. With a, with a postcard. We did on a it. video for a little bit, but it's, it's a lot more work and I, it's so much, it's more, so work. much more work. It's, I would, we're going to practice uh, <laughs> for the blade itself. Yeah. We'll see. Good luck. But we're going to try. Yeah. Hire more people. My advice. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are predominantly a staff of two yeah. and a half. Well, so try, try to hire more people, but, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess it just again it just goes back to these these moments. I'm a half by uh, the way. There, nice. PJ. <laughs> it goes back to these moments of just being generally genuinely impressed by what we got, and not in a way being surprised by what we got. Like being surprised by Lightbringer as as far as what kind of book it actually is. It's it's much deeper a text uh, to kind of use some of your rhetoric uh, across than uh, that I anticipated. It's expository like there and and I think that it feels this way in part because of the amount that Pierce wrote. Right. And then he had to call it down to focus it into what he specifically wanted to say and talk about. And so I think that there are a scattering of ideas that I think are all manifested well and do drive us forward. I think a great example of this is like the path of the veil. Right. It's tough to not talk about this in the path of the veil. It's a perfect representation. I was. I I mentioned this off air when we were talking before this, but I it's just actively what I try to do with any of the series that we cover. I try not to watch anything that talks about like the book or like Mm -hmm. whatever we're going to interrogate because it gets into ideas and I don't want to just be painted by other people's thoughts. I want to interpret the text and then get to explore that with PJ. That's my ideal state for the podcast. So I didn't watch anything that you guys had done talking about it, but then I did watch the interviews that you had done after we had finished and i i had been listening to the wolfgard witnesses of course and other things like that but i i listened to the interviews and i was so internally resonant with recognizing that this was the tao te ching and like a combination of sto- stoic mm-hmm. ideologies that i just like my heart sang in the moment when i recognized that because i've i've spent a lot of my life studying ethics and philosophy and morals and it's it was so nice to like be like, yes, all right, I was on it this time. Um, and to hear that was just it was a moral resounding note. But the Path of the Veil is fascinating because it's bringing that idea of a foundation for Darrow where he lacked one outside of this metaphysical idea of the dream of EO before. It, I always, I felt, even in, especially in Dark Age, actually, that it was like forcing himself to believe. You know, like I think that I was mm-hmm. like, especially in that book, like, there was, you know, you can see it getting, I guess, in a way, they going. There's a rise and fall with his 
belief in the dream of EO. You know, a little bit more of a falling in golden sun, and then a rising in morning star, then a you know a descending in in iron gold, and then going plunging downward. I mean, there's a conversation in the beginning of the book of Dark Age where. Yeah, he's talking with Orion and and he's like really they're really both struggling with this idea like you deaths. sound you yeah. sound like I think Darrow accuses Orion of sounding like one of them but I think internally mm-hmm. he's also questioning that for himself like wouldn't it just be easier if we just did what Orion is talking about just took control of the storm gods just blew everyone up and just kind of called it a day which you change rather that's after he- but still he didn't shut it off early enough yeah. either. So like he did follow through in that. Yeah. You know, he's, he's complicit yeah. in her. But yeah, I, d- I do love that, you know, the path of veil offers something that is, is more, it does echo again. It's another one of those things that echoes back to the first book. It, and, and, and we talked about that with Pierce on that interview we did with them about how there is that call again, a call and response almost like we talked about as well. And yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah. He, he said it was stoicism and Taoism was like the two things that you just referenced yep. as that right. he kind of pointed to and, and those those philosophies. Yeah, I mean, I think there's like such heavy, heavy religious talk in the entire series, whether you can point to like, I mean, he's he mentions Christian faith. He mentions, you know, ideas from Christian faith. He mentions there's how oh, it was I was at the tip of my tongue. And I lost it. There's another like relig- kind of a world religion that he kind of talks about within the series. But I love that he just kind of. He's going back to these things that, you know, millions of people have believed in, millions of people have kind of, you know, went along with, went along with the ride. And then he's like including that in his books. Some people might not like that, but, and again, it's, it's, it's just a perspective. It's not necessarily, he's like, and he never like force feeds that religious hand to you, but he, like he allows it to kind of be in the text to creep in and, and to be present. Yeah. I, I think Darrow's personal relationship with faith is even more interesting to approach now. But, I mean, it was interesting from the beginning, but now understanding the path to the veil and seeing sort of Taoism come into play and that not not being religion, but a philosophical ideology and feeding into this veil-based religion, it, it, it creates this really, really cool situation where he's finally bridging the sort of spiritual gap between red and gold, which, I mean, he's been at odds with it for a long time. The very spiritual nature and religious nature of reds versus the atheistic nature of golds. And he's bridged the physical gap. He's bridged the mental gap, but finally sort of bridging that spiritual gap is, I felt very satisfied by it. Yeah. The spiritual differences between the two, I think, are apparent. Obviously, there's the obsidians that we have to like wrap into this conversation, too. But obviously, within Darrow's mindset, like the red has always taken the forefront. And also what's interesting is Darrow's cult of personality leads everyone else to also believe in the red ideology. So like everyone ends up talking about the veil, even if it's not their sort of like spiritual base which is kind of fascinating. It, it does change Darrow into like a little bit of a cult leader. Like I'm, I'm not claiming that necessarily, but, but he, he or notes he that. doesn't, he's not the cult leader. Like, you know I mean, like it's like them, them are, they're, no, they're right, hoisting right. him up to be that. Like, they're like, you be the cult leader, bro. <laughs> and like, he's like, ah, oh. <laughs> he's like, I'm the yeah, reaper. I, mean, I got the reaper song. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like a forced role in that way. And, 
And I mean, he, like there's that scene where he's been captured by Athena and he's watching the hollows, a harrowing scene of all the executions that have happened in his name. And they're, they're yelling his name as they're dying. He didn't, you know, he didn't sign up for any of that. You know what I mean? Like he, he feels, he right. feels it. And you, and I love that he feels it, but he, he's not weeping. He's not crying, but he definitely is internalizing that all. Like my name has power. My name can cancel out a lot of the evils in this world for these people. And and then the next thing he does is goes and gives that speech that we've been talking about and accepts that responsibility, and that, which is something he had not done for a long time, has accepted responsibility. And I think that that, you know, that kind of feeds into his own myth a little bit at the same time. But it's exactly what they wanted him to be. And he, he does that for them, but for himself, for Virginia, for his son, for Severo, for Diomedes, for Cassius. He does it for everybody. And you're like, he, so it's funny. It's like this reluctant, unwilling cult leader that actually, in a way that actually also stands up and, and answers the call at the same time. He's, he's such a fascinating character. Without a doubt. I think this leads in naturally to maybe the final thing that we'll talk about here, which is sort of the discussion around accountability that this kind of text ekes out, right? And I think that is in the form of Athena's trial and sort of the way that the daughters hold Darrow accountable, right? There, there's this quote that I really love from this section that I'll just bring up so that we can spark the conversation. But Athena says, life is easy to imagine as a path, but it is moments like this when you think about it like a particle accelerator. You, the daughters, your two high energy beams traveling close to the speed of light before colliding. That collision laid bare the essential building blocks of your nature and ours. Dang. I don't really I don't really remember that one. So good. Yeah. So, right? The the trial is almost lost in the text of Tempest because there's so much there in that part. Tempest is too it's almost it, like too fast. Interrogates. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it truly part one and part two are a book, and then part three and part four are yeah. a book. Nothing wrong with that, but they are like separate ideas almost. Mm-hmm. I want PJ to go first on this one. I'm the guest. I, <laughs> the daughters are such a, an interesting addition to the story in that like, at its surface, they should be. They should function and act and uh, present themselves much like the Sons of Ares, but... A couple critical differences and a very critically different location has completely changed the way that they operate and the way that they think and how they feel and their betrayal. I mean, it's not even a perceived betrayal. The straight up betrayal by Darrow has knocked them out of orbit compared to where the Sons of Ares were, were heading and... It is, it, it, it created this strange, compelling, and very, very fun antagonist group that is fighting for exactly the same thing in exactly the same way against the exact same people, but are at odds. It, it, it's, it's echoed between uh, Diomedes and Athena the the idea of brokering a peace between groups that don't want 
a conversation mm-hmm. like that that happens with Darrow as a representative of the sons of Ares or of the Republic really and Athena as well like they are angry stranded lost capable people uh very very strong of heart and mind and body and they they're not necessarily allies and it just makes for such a fun compelling i don't even remember where i'm going with this conversation i'm rambling at this point i like it i like the rambles uh, but but i i just i love the interaction between darrow and the daughters because it should be on on paper other than the docs if we're going to ignore that war crime if we can if we, if we ignore that, they should be like perfectly copacetic. And uh, even then, unfortunately, even, there even is if a war you crime. Remove, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think even if you remove that transgression, there's just slight mm-hmm. deviations in the way that they evolved. And it, it creates a much more volatile, revenge focused group. And maybe that's because mm. of the transgression of Darrow. Um, but. Interesting. I don't find it revenge focused. I think that like the path to the veil is a foundational text for them and nothing in the path says that anything is revenge. No, I'm I'm not talking about the path though. I'm I'm talking about just the way that the daughters operate. I guess revenge or vengeance. Sure. Yeah. uh, um, But they, they, they want to settle a score against the rim for sure. And that's not to say that the Republic doesn't want to settle a score against the society at the same time, but they feel more uh, raw and more, yeah, more raw in that emotion. Uh, Cross, uh, you you have a you have a clear point of why you brought this up. I feel like you need to show your hand. I think you have like your yeah. There's a card that you haven't played yet, and there's a reason why you brought brought this specific quote up, this specific idea. And you're 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 kind of wanting us to. It feels like you're wanting us to guess what it is, but I feel like it's better to ask you. No, I I don't think it's necessarily guesswork in in so much as Pierce is also making you like do guesswork here. Um, it's it's just such an interesting bit to interrogate, especially the final like that collision of these two forces laid bare the essential building blocks of our nature, yours and ours. Uh, so I. I PJ, you're totally right. There is something that's very foundationally different between the Sons of Aries and the Daughters that are, it's great to interrogate. But I think that they're, to me, at the very least, the question that I would pose then is maybe it's more like this accountability was always going to happen at some point had with Darrow, to. yeah. right? And it had to, right? And so this was, this is sort of one of the many moments in which it was going to spring up. Given the nature of the timing of the accountability, is is maybe more of the question like would athena have joined pre this moment or like pre sort of the reckoning is obviously it's better in the results at the end of the story because it feeds into sort of the meta of like what's going to happen they've got more forces whatever else but i don't know there, there's something fascinating to interrogate in my head with with athena and with the daughters and with darrow in particular and the potential death if like darrow didn't show up yeah I don't know. There's, there's a lot with Athena. Even like giving the key back. That was um, that was that was like nice Hax's touch, key, right? Right. Like there's, there's so much there between like there's compassion, there's ethics, there's moral, but there's something different. I don't know. So that's why I wanted you, to bring it up. I, I don't you, have it. You an go answer. to chapter eleven. I mean, this is off the top of the head. 
so just bear with me on this. Chapter eleven. There's a hollow. Yeah. You know, there's a hollow of set of. of, of uh, there's a hollow of Fitchner and Athena talking directly to our guys, and and that hollow Athena says like, "There's no longer like this is this is not a question of." society and rim and all these little smaller micro factions this is low and high like this is all rendering down to something much bigger than we can kind of grapple with right now and we need to align ourselves quickly in order for this to work um and i think that's just kind of the character just upholds that through her those those smaller more micro actions as well uh and with her, whether the the quote you have in question, whether it's the giving of the of the key back to Darrow, she she is very aligned with that idea she, that she speaks into existence back in chapter eleven, and I think that just carries forward through the book. And I think that it will be. I, I think that I don't know how much Athena will be in Red God. I imagine some, or maybe yeah. not at all. I'm not sure, but I think the idea that she puts forth will be in Red God of this. And I think that Lysander actually helps that cause because he has a biological weapon that can actually rid low colors now. So it's even more reason and more causation for the uniting of more of these more sympathetic or not sympathetic, but these more, you know, like these kind of lower caste systems, these more, what's the word, you know, enslaved people yeah, Coalitions. yeah enslaved people to yeah. be more of one mind i i think that she does something to the story that is is again like like most like like gaia or like virginia or like whatever you want to call it, like whoever you want to put into question they actually have real functionality in the story and athena is exactly that she uh, she offers a really tangible function that we and a lesson that we need to know about and learn i like that I'd love to, I, I know, I know we're coming to a close yeah. and uh, because you brought up Eidney, I'd love to end with a little bit of speculation. Sure. I'm bad at uh, speculation. The speculation <laughs> of exactly what is presented at the end of the book. <laughs> what does Lysander start with, red or gold? Do you think it's going to be used? Are you convinced? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't fucking know. <laughs> I think the thread yeah, of it is more... The, I think the boogeyman of it is actually scarier than the execution of it. That's true. I think that, I mean, it's again, it's, it was, I, I'm starting sentences with I think, which I don't really love because it's, it's speculation, but, and I, I hate trying to decipher some of these things, but I don't hate it, even but I'm if not it's, good at it. Even if it's not used, what does he threaten first? Does he, because like, I, I, I do believe he'll threaten to use it. I'm I'm actually least. genuinely scared of this. Right, yeah. sitting right here in this chair and talking to both of you, I think it became more real to me right now than it did reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, holy crap, <laughs> this is scary. This is actually scary. At first, I think that I thought of I'd me Ed me as something that is like, yeah, it's just like a almost like a. It doesn't matter if it works or not. It's just like this. It's a scary thing that lingers. And now I'm realizing that it. It, what it actually could do and i know that's probably funny to people right now like oh duh philip but i'm yeah i'm genuinely scared of it but i'm not sure if it's going to be used i'm not sure if it's going to be need need to be used i think it what it for what i see it as i'm kind of sidestepping your question a little bit pj i think Fine. It, totally. what it off yeah. what it offers like its existence it offers or allows darrow to show us what he learned 
a Lightbringer can actually be employed in Red God. Like, that's my actual take. That because of what Cassius did, he become a, he becomes a millstone and it beca- and, and doesn't like actually rip it from the you know Lysander's hands and bring it to Darrow and or just walk away like he like a lot of people think he could have which I set two feet from the man who created and said there's no way that pe- that Cassius could actually leave that is not even a permissible idea for this character what it, I think it really offers is a, is a way for Darrow to show and prove his growth. Because, again, if, if Cassius were to walk out and go, hey, guess what? There's a biological weapon. And and I don't really know about it because, like, Atlas was kind of just throwing this weird thing out there. And it was kind of mumbo jumbo that, you know, you know, Atlas, he's a weirdo. Um, but, uh, yeah, that sounds pretty scary. Like, Darrow having to, like, learn of this weapon, learn of, you know, gather that information, do that due diligence of seeing what it can do or maybe even actually finding out what it does after the fact finding out that a whole all the pinks are just dead on mercury or whatever it might be right whatever like whatever scenario i know that's probably not it the moon moon. yeah yeah what is his response how does he respond to that how now going back to the beginning how now is mercy permissible in this world now and that makes it way more complicated that makes it way harder for a character to be (sighs) sacrificial to be merciful to be virtuous to be honorable now with that type of that type of weapon at hand that that is really what I'm more interested in, I guess. It's it's utilization is way secondary to to Daryl proving something to me. Okay, I like that. Your that was such a good way to to pin that. I think in large part, especially to paint it as a millstone. But I I think that that is a the millstone is Cassius in my head for Lysander. Sure. Lysander could not give a shit about the lower colors. For the most part, outside of his sort of like overarching, I have a you whole, know, I have a ideology. whole big long thing. I'll tell you guys another point about the millstone yeah. and why, like the power of that exact word. Yeah, but, we can get into yeah. this later. We could do, we could do yeah, like we, another hour. I, I would have no do problem doing a lot that more at Cassius, point. but I'm sparing your audience right. because I've already done so much on Cassius on on my podcast feed. We we did a lot of yes, Cassius last time, so I wanted to try not yeah. do Cassius this time. But we could definitely do that. I would love a Cassius focus episode. And we've got nothing but time, so. Well, I mean, not today, but overall. Um, in life. <laughs> right, in life. There's nothing but time. Yeah, I, wow, I, I personally believe that I think that Lysander will test it on the moon first, given the sort of situation that's going on there with the syndicate. Right, syndicate slash Fox. I think yeah. he will. Yeah, right. Which syndicate is now slash Fox a, slash, like, a homogenous uh, group now at this point, it looks like, potentially. Right. It seems yeah. like it seems like Luna is its own, like almost independent body. And they're just letting that exist because it's secretly under the control. Curious. No idea. We'll see. They're kind of the rogue element in the story. But I believe that that's where Lysander will test it first. Then it becomes a ticking clock for Darrow. Yeah. Right. In the long run of like, OK, now I've seen the cruelty. And you're right. That does change the interrogation of mercy in the story. The genocide that is committed changes the tenor of what you how you respond yeah and i i think that's just reality that's just that's the way that that is and if that's the case um, then we you can feel when where another one it's theoretical but it changes when it's and physical. if that does get utilized i i expect much different things from darrow than i do going into the book right i expect him to be merciful right. and to lead with the path of the veil and the dream of you at his core at his heart but if that if that is on the table and utilized not just on the table but actually utilized it completely changes the way I mm-hmm. feel and I think the way he should feel about 
those ideas. Right. Yeah. So different. Such a different book at that point. Totally. Oh, man. Scary. I, again, I just got scared now. I, I, I really did. I, really, I was like, oh, my gosh, BJ just made this real for me. <laughs> the text has physically changed yeah. in the moment. Uh, I love that. Cool. So thank you so much for your time, Philip. We appreciate you for, for coming on the show to have this discussion. It's been excellent. And, you know, maybe we'll see in a little conversation on the side. Yeah, we'll see what happens. But when we can. Yeah, we've got time in January. We've got we were planning on maybe starting the blade itself this month. I think we're going to start it in February, given given our current trajectory. So we January is a, is a slow a month. Yeah. Can I plug our podcast cool. real quick? Is that OK? Yeah, yeah, totally. of course. Uh, we would plug it for you. Yeah, we will. But yeah, so it's it's Hail Reaper. A Red Rising podcast is the official name. No one calls it that. It's like, you know, Hail Reaper colon a Red Rising podcast. But just Hail Reaper pod is pretty much our handle on everything. We're like Instagram and Twitter and I think uh, YouTube as well. But so that's where you can find us. And then you can find us on any podcast feed. And they just like you guys. It's just like it's Apple. It's Spotify. It's uh, all those little more smaller arenas that you listen to podcasts on. I guess Pocket Cast is is iffy. I don't know about you guys for for that too, but Pocket Cast can be. They they randomly like lost the feed and then picked oh, it yeah. up again. I haven't yeah. checked, but I've I've heard from different users that Pocket Pocket Cast. So maybe try something else if you're a, a Pocket Cast user for us. Overcast, go or to Overcast. Overcast. Yeah, Audible, all those little little guys. But yeah, I, I I think that if you liked Words and Whiskey, I think you'd like our podcast too i think there's a lot of similarities there and it might be so similar that you find it annoying to listen to two two groups of people talk about a lot of the same things but unlike words and whiskey we only cover we only cover red rising where you guys are much more expansive in your your thoughts and your views and i think that that actually i was thinking about this the other day before you know i was actually thinking about this like a day ago you guys probably have a better in some ways even more well-rounded a bit in your approach than maybe we are in certain aspects because you have other other books to bounce Pierce's work off of and go like well this and this I know we bring we bring Steinbeck up so much because of we think he's so instructive but <laughs> but we so we do talk about other books but it's mostly classic literature because that's mostly what we read outside of Red Rising Red Rising is actually the only modern thing that I truly read. I'm going to make I'm going to make one recommendation and then you can absolutely finish your pitch. That's it, the you pitch. have to read Sun Eater by Christopher Rocchio. Okay. You have okay. to. So, I'm demanding you this send, of you. DM that to me. We cannot yeah, be friends. Yes, we yeah. cannot be friends <laughs> unless you read at the very least Empire cool. of Silence. That sounds good. That's my pitch. Yeah. And right. I normally am not that pitch forward, but I feel I feel I feel that I, I want to I want to get it out there. I want to say, hey, check it us out. So. Check us out. Jeremy, my my Jeremy, Janelle, Mathar, myself, depending on the episode, that's, you know, you get a, you know, about depending on the, you know, people, there's a few different people, but mostly Jeremy, my, and my, Jeremy and myself. All yeah, wonderful, beautiful people with a wonderful, just the best. Show. Thank you. Just the best. We appreciate you so much and for coming on the show and discussing this with us. Love to just the Cassius centered thing. Maybe we'll see. We'll talk. Yeah. We'll chat. We'll chat later. But, but it was so great to have have you on for this and can't wait to talk again. Naturally, we've got all of Red God so much time to speculate so on this. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thank you both. And whatever the eighth right. book is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all both. Right. Cool. Uh, all right. So thank you so much, of course, to Philip from Hail Reaper for coming on the show. We're so excited to have you back and to like chat so much more about all things Lightbringer, even if 
we didn't even touch a single one of the things that was written on the document. It's so good to just kind of get to get to chat through it all. It was amazing. That was fun. Yeah, it was it was a great time all around. Uh, welcome back whenever, whatever, at any point. But with that, thinking about next week, I want to maybe paint a picture for the rest of the month because our time um, this month is split between a couple of different travel things, a couple of different birthdays. So painting a picture for the rest of the month, we've got kind of three things that we're looking to release. One is a follow-up episode with Zeph Barbecue talking a little bit about Lysander and a little bit of an apology there and then Lightbringer on the whole. Very excited to chat with Zeph again there. We are going to follow that up with or be in the mix of an episode of Salem's Lot and talking about that book. We had originally planned for this to come out as a short pour in October. However, it takes more time to read. PJ got fucking married. There was a lot of shit going on. So we're going to do that as one of the episodes this month. Then rounding out that trilogy of episodes will be our episode on The Sunlit Man by Brandon Sanderson. And we're just going to be releasing these kind of in the primary feed. The first week of February is the first episode that we will do on the blade itself. And that is the game plan for January. Sounds good. Cool. Down. I'm down. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Sick. Well, as always, thank you, Tim and Andrew, for being the backbone of the show and making sure we exist. All of you, dear listeners, check out the show notes. We work very hard on them. and. I write them individually myself, not really. Crossland does all of it. But you can find our schedule, oh. our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one convenient location. Other than that, make sure that you leave us a five-star review. Otherwise, Philip will be sad. And you don't make Philip sad. Yeah, don't make Philip sad. Yeah. Right. Again, like PJ had said, words and whiskey pod on thread slash blue sky because fuck that x twitter place instagram and reddit you can check us out there words and whiskey show gmail.com other than that make sure that you check out hail reaper pod they have a number of excellent episodes if you're looking for one to start on the docks of ganymede episode is wonderful and lovely and i highly recommend it that's where i would start indeed all right with that we'll see you next week see you soon